to Docs in Orbit, where we feature conversations with independent creative documentary filmmakers from around the world. This is Christina Zachariades. In today's episode, we feature a conversation with three filmmakers, Isabella Rinaldi from Italy, Christina Hanesh from Romania, and Aria Rothi from India. Together, the three make up the No Cut Film Collective, which they founded in 2016 after graduating from the Doc Nomads Master's program. They have just released their first production, a feature-length documentary titled A Rifle and a Bag. The film is a portrait of Somi, who is living with her husband and two small children in a camp in central India that was set up by the government for ex-Naxalites, meaning that they were once a part of a communist rebel group but had surrendered to the government. A Rifle in a Bag premiered at Rotterdam International Film Festival in the Bright Future section and was awarded special mention from the jury. Since its world premiere, it was invited to screen in New York at the Museum of Moving Image and the Saloniki Film Festival, both of which were canceled due to the unfortunate coronavirus pandemic. Now, many festivals are finding ways to adapt and working crazily to gear up for online streaming. The Swiss documentary film festival Visions du Real is among these, and a rifle in a bag is a part of their official selection and available to stream on their website. Critics have described a rifle in a bag as a moving film of resilience. What I find remarkable is not only the story of the protagonist, but also the way in which the three filmmakers were able to work together, transnationally, and co-direct a film. Eka Tsutsoria, a fellow alumni of Doc Nomads, caught up with no-cut film collectives Aria, Isabella, and Christina through Skype right before the pandemic hit Europe to discuss the film, their collaboration, and tips on remote working, which takes on a new importance in these times. Here's the conversation. Uh, hello, ladies, and thank you so much for being with me online from different places across the planet. So we have Isabella Rinaldi from Italy here. Uh, hi. Cristina Hanesh talking to us from Romania. Hi, hello. And Aria Rote from Pune, India. Hello. Hi, Aria. And yeah, just like this, based in your respective countries, you girls made a feature documentary together, A Rifle and a Bag, which premiered at Rotterdam Film Festival. So you're three filmmakers from the same generation of Doc Nomas Masters. And as a graduate of the same master, I can imagine you had quite a journey together leading up to your first collaborative feature documentary. Um, rumors have it everything started actually with an inseparable friendship. Is that true? <laughs> Who wants to start? I can, I can start. Go, go, go. <laughs> so it all started in 2014 when we met in Lisbon for the first semester of Doc Nomads. Yes, it did start with, uh, with a friendship, um, a friendship in which we also lived together, so a very close-knit one. 
And I think in the first uh, summer holiday, uh, we were casually discussing on, on our WhatsApp group like always. And uh, we, I think, impulsively said, guys, after we finish Doc Nomads, we should make a film together. But then immediately after graduating Doc Nomads, we knew that if we don't react very fast, because we all return to our uh, native countries, we might, you know, get swallowed by reality and uh, confusion of returning home after such a long time. So we bought a ticket to India for uh, three months, in which we decided to travel together with the intention to make a film together. Yeah. So we went to a village which is a place of a very close family friend of uh, mine. And um, we met a surrendered Naxalite and then through him we saw the settlement. We were completely taken by the place and we met Somi also there. And we were also immediately in one go taken by her. So we knew that, okay, there is something here that we have to revisit and see what happens. So that's how we started off. And how is it like to build relationship it takes to make such an intimate portrait of the family? How is it like to gain their trust? Yeah, I mean, we met Somi like and we were very taken by her. But then and I think we were very sincere with her. Like we told her that we were very fascinated by her personality, by her story, and that we wanted to try to make a film with her. And I remember we said, you know, we don't know yet i mean we don't know if you're gonna like us or if it's gonna work but if you want to try let's try it we could see the first signs of the features that we loved so much about her uh, which was her her strength the fact Mm -hmm. that she was so outspoken and at the same time a bit reserved yeah we were quite open about the fact that Yes, we are interested uh, in her story about her past as a uh, Naxalite, but at the same time, we told her that her current life has the same weight of importance for us. At the very beginning, we did speak about her past as a Naxalite, but then we left it aside. We retook this subject later on when we were more close and when we we felt uh, she could tell the story in her own terms and uh, feel free and and comfortable to share this uh, this past uh, events that were of course quite troubling from the society of course she she encountered all sorts of reactions so i guess she needed to know that we are not uh, imposing any judgments on her to get together and make a film together. It's a pretty natural continuation of, uh, of Doc Nomad's experience. Yet still, three directors based in three different countries. How did you manage with the roles and tasks while making this film? And who was doing what, basically? How did you avoid unhealthy power dynamics, for example? Um, From the beginning, uh, we were quite clear on the fact that we would be co-directing the film. And I guess, I mean, for all of us, we had no issue of sharing this, uh, let's say, 
the most important role. But at the same time, we knew that uh, during filming, in order to ensure a consistency, we would have to split uh, the roles. So um, that's how we, we decided that, of course, Aria uh, having the possibility to, to communicate with the characters. Uh, she was dealing with the communication. I took the, the camera and Isa was uh, recording the, the sound. Yeah. Also, the creative decisions as to how we wanted to approach the film, we did it together in a space away from our filming location. And when we were there, we kind of were on the same page. And once uh, we communicated what we wanted to with Somi, after that, the frame was hers. There was no uh, interference from either of us. And also when it was happening, since she speaks the tribal languages, Mahadiya and Gondi, none of us understood it. So we were all uh, quite clueless as to what was happening. We could, of course, sense the energy. But it was much later when we translated the material that we understood what was happening. And then we took the next step together. So that way, there was no uh, crisscross happening on location. And also, because we started off from friendship, there was this trust that if Christina says we can't film, we can't film. Or if Isa says we can't record right now, we can't record. Or if Somi wasn't in the mood, we didn't film. It was, there was no fight around it. I imagine like this question about the, how did you manage to work in such close collaboration across three different countries will come up over and over again in your <laughs> in your uh, Q&As and you'll be very tired yeah. of it. Yeah. Unless you already get tired of it. So I'll move on from it. And I, I wanted to ask you about the visual approach. Film has a very clear and deliberate, precise even visual approach. It's the central and frontal framing of the protagonists. I would even say iconesque imagery. I don't know if this is a word. I hope it is. Um, the framing itself empowers the protagonist. Could you describe the process of arriving at this approach? What helped you to define it, to make it so precise? I think uh, from the beginning we had to, to define very clear our limitations in the film. And because we didn't understand the language, we didn't know what's being spoken while filming, uh, we knew that something has to be more controlled. We could only decide the focus of a certain scene and then we had to abandon control, let's say, and leave the space to the characters and leave the scene to unfold organically and reaching to larger uh, frames was also to allow more freedom in this very controlled approach. You would always have in the foreground the character as the focus, but at the same time you would leave uh, the room for the background to emerge, for things to just happen spontaneously behind or for the sound to complement this quite limited view you would have. I think it also goes with uh, an attitude that we have while making films 
a patient one, one in which we would position ourselves somewhere and wait for things to come to us. And uh, we try to, yeah, to merge these two, the, let's say, deliberately controlled framing with the, uh, you know, flow of reality. Yeah. There is another thing also that the place where she lives is a very stagnant place. I mean, it's a beautiful place with a lot of nature, but there is a sense of stagnancy and the movement comes from her. And that is mm-hmm. reflected directly in the visual approach. Like uh, Christina said that you have her in the foreground and she is free to move within this frame. And that, uh, for me at least, accentuates the kind of stagnancy that they face. It's the pace of that place. This was another way of being as cinematically true to it as possible mm-hmm. from our side. Um, yeah, to say that, of course, uh, this place also inspired us aesthetically from the beginning. We observed their habits. Uh, we, we, of course, were delighted by, by light, by uh, the whole mise-en-scene that was in front of us. And so, yeah, we thought that, um, yeah, the, the static camera would be the best to um, capture it. Also allow them to move out of the frame and uh, leave the sound to evoke the rest. Because this also happens in the film that you sometimes are left there without any character. And so the film was almost entirely built on these fixed sequence shots in which discussions and actions were played out organically, let's say. You mentioned yourself that you were enchanted by Somi, really attracted by her energy from the beginning. And it is definitely so in the cinematic reality as well. As she comes across as a very strong-headed character with powerful vital energy, Even if she's in a vulnerable position politically, we never catch her in a moment with her guard down, basically. And I was thinking maybe the visual approach of the film also contributed to this, to emphasize this. Was it ever your intention to portray femininity in this particular way, or, or it's just the way you naturally felt her persona? Like, uh, for sure, let's say this was while filming or anyway, in the beginning of the filming, it was an element that we were uh, like wondering about, but mainly from a narrative uh, construction point of view. You know, we were imagining what might happen, what is going to be, his or kid is going to school, like all these kind of things. And we were saying, okay, maybe at some point she will have a moment of whatever mm, fear or... uh, Uh, sadness or feeling defeated or I mean we were you know fantasizing and imagining it but then it kind of didn't happen and it's not because she's not aware of the difficulties that she has to face it's just that that's the way she faced them with a big laughter (laughs) yeah nor we trimmed out anything that made her look weaker it was just not there I think it's also that, of course, she has a vulnerable position. I mean, she does feel vulnerable and she does feel at times lost. But I think it, it's, it's something that she 
doesn't have the luxury of expressing because of the way her life is she's so much in control of all the elements in her household that she needs to have this uh, strong presence because she keeps everyone connected from her husband to her kids basically it's in a way a little bit obvious if she was in a vulnerable position even at once in the film it's kind of expected mm-hmm. no when you watch mm-hmm. the film so that was also another reason for us to not have it mhm yeah it's just that she doesn't have a very obvious uh, let's say an evident way of necessarily showing this kind of things which is which is what we loved actually yeah also that that yeah. it it it's surprising like you said that she laughs mm-hmm. i think it's like we we think that it's great that she laughs when she's talking about things that are difficult of it's course it's a coping mechanism that is uh, that is also not devoid of her solitude but it's also her way of doing like coping definitely it doesn't only show her as a powerful a uh, character but it's even empowering to watch her laugh it's very it's very beautiful yeah. um i'm sure that women like her are frequent to indian reality just like many other realities but how about cinematic reality of india indian screens how common is it to see women depicted with so much authority in a way to indian viewers maybe it's more question to arya okay uh like you said that there are women like this in india quite a few but even for somi within her settlement she is quite unique and she was quite disliked by a lot of people for speaking her mind and in terms of indian screens yes there have been narratives with a uh, strong indian female characters definitely but i i don't know maybe it's my love for somi but i think she's quite uh, it's not as uh, common i would say mm. i also wanted to ask you about the scenes around the fire one thing that you notice for sure as you look at the film is that uh, the scenes keep on coming back and it it becomes uh, an important motive of the film leading all the way up to the ending which gives this motive even more weight and value actually sitting around the fire and talking late at night and early in the morning is kind of a ritual in this place we realize that there are a lot of interesting conversations that start to happen because you have this mis- it almost creates this very mysterious ethereal space and it's also very intimate uh we also kind of assigned to each particular mise en scene like for example the fire the jungle a certain uh role a certain meaning so around the fire it was the place where they would reflect it was a space where they would yeah receive their neighbors so it was also a socializing moment by the fire so it was um, a very adequate situation to allow this this moments to happen mhm i know that your role in their lives um has evolved a lot and that you're very engaged with the family life up to these days what do you think is the impact of the film on her on this family uh, i mean a first uh, uh, impact kinda already happened because we we knew from somi that uh, dadu her kid got the caste certificate in the end and we mm-hmm. know that that was also partially because of our 
let's say intervention in the in the story in the reality because of course we also helped her to meet these officers we were there of course you know having in this sense the camera can be powerful a little bit so it served the purpose also to raise this issue that the kids of uh, surrender naxalite have in the region because dadu is not the only one that he's facing this uh, kind of bureaucracy uh, void uh, and it did help for the local authorities to let's say have a more precise uh, awareness that this is an issue that somehow has to be solved for more people not only for for in this case for somi so that was the first impact i would say yeah and another thing uh, i would like to add is that um, naxalites are perceived in a very specific light in the urban uh, indian cities most of the cities in the urban crowd i mean the hope is to kind of also break the notion that media has created around this crisis so we hope that if uh, from the film we would be able to achieve that to an extent what what is the the media narrative you're trying to to tackle maybe you can say a few more words about this idea you have uh, the media that is kind of pro naxalite movement and you have the media that is against the uh, naxalite movement also and they both come from completely different almost close to propaganda approaches like you know you have it in media but uh, this is a story of a person who has lived it no she i mean and i think that is a very important element that it isn't opinion of somebody it is what it is with her and i think that our approach is not to promote a certain kind of propaganda but to see this mother struggle and to see what it takes from leaving one ideology and accepting one in a country like india and to move forward in life i think mm. it will humanize this issue to a, to an extent at least that is the hope so that would be the best uh, hope like with all the best documentaries right <laughs> Yeah. Yet there is another layer of complexity too there I feel because we also feel she still sympathizes with the movement she there's a song mm-hmm. she sings at some point next to the river or the way she talks to her son gives us a perspective about her motives to surrender yeah that remains uh, that yeah that remains uh, let's say open in the film the reasons uh, why she surrendered um for sure we wanted to yeah to give these hints and because from the very beginning we did feel that she is a bit torn apart she does uh, believe she does uh, consider the ideology under which she was fighting uh, as hers she thinks it's a it's a fight worth fighting for and we understood there is no remorse from this sense from her side and that was of course an important aspect because it meant that she gave up her ideals for something else mm-hmm. and those ideals are still uh, present in her and she has to uh, restrain them in a way in order to be able to integrate in this mainstream i'll ask you about the funding the support you found for the film along the way you have 
a pretty impressive list of supporters. You have Doha Film Institute, Bertha Fund, Busan International Film Festival, Asian Cinema Fund, Alter Cine. Maybe you would have some tips for your colleagues. How did you think you positioned your project as a strong contender for funding? That's a tough one. Uh, uh, Kisa, you start. <laughs> <laughs> we can back you up. The, the fund, we know it is a jungle and a lottery and uh, it's very hard <laughs> to uh, find your way out. We tried many times after refusals. That was like uh, the first thing that I would say. I mean, of course, that's your they, tip. That's the tip. Like if a fund that doesn't uh, fund you right away, be very, very stubborn because it doesn't mean that the film is not, that the project is not uh, worth it or it doesn't mean that you are going to eventually get it because, of course, these funds are, I mean, again, they're kind of a lottery. So there are so many factors into it that it's very hard to to understand sometimes what are the reasons. If you believe that the project is strong, it's somehow it's going to happen. Then a very good thing like it is when some funds, I mean, not all the time, but like some funds do give feedback. So that's like uh, it's a good thing that for us helped us in some cases. And uh, also I would say like to know, to be sure that the film you want to do, that the film you're proposing has a strong approach and that that approach also that subject, uh, that regional interest, it is compatible with the fund you're applying to. Because, of course, that is a huge thing. Like some films are very tailored for specific uh, uh, film institutes and not for others. That would save you a lot of energy and disappointment. And uh, so that would be my personal tip. Also, uh, one thing that we learned is uh, your treatment doesn't really need to explain what is happening in the video. It should be complimentary, of course, but I mean, when you're cutting a trailer for the fun, you tend to kind of tell a full story in those five minutes. Like Iza was saying, if it just expresses uh, your conscious choices that are going into your themes, visual approach, editing, everything, I think that is one of the best places to start. Because if you come across as confusing, even if you have a really nice film, funds tend to push you for the next round. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. they tend to say that, okay, apply again when you're more prepared. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And you have to keep applying. And rejections after a point make no difference. Till that moment, mm-hmm. you have to keep applying. <laughs> Maybe uh, you also have other tips like this for filmmakers working transnationally. Uh, Do you think that during this experience of collective work, you also generated some experience to to share? uh, One thing I would say is get used to long-distance relationships very much. (laughs) It's, uh, but, (laughs) so it's not, uh, it's not easy, but I think I speak for all the three of us. It's really worth it. I mean, if you are in it for the long haul and if you, decide to remain patient and just follow through it even when the time seems difficult now it feels like I'm talking about a relationship but it is in a way so yeah I think that is the main uh, key is to keep at it and be patient so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and maybe I mean uh, the what we try to do it's also like a little bit to break this Sometimes a notion that like to make a film that is like uh, genuine and valuable and sincere, you necessarily need to be from 
that specific culture, region, city, religion, whatever you want to call it, whatever is the belonging that is needed to be, because sometimes in documentary there is a little bit this thing. We think that this transnational uh, collaboration really allows you not only to meet the others, which is a very crucial thing, I guess, that would uh, improve uh, our society a lot if it would happen more, but it also like really helps to think about the, I mean, about cinema. Like a story is a story, character is a character, the cinematic truth you're looking for is there. And of course, you need to educate yourself. You need to understand the universe you are uh, moving in that is probably very different than the one you come from. But it's not impossible. Understanding someone else, it's not only understanding their culture. It's also a matter of uh, a relationship between individuals. And that somehow for us, it's meaningful in documentary cinema. And I mean, it's it's kind of what we were given in Docnomads that we took forward. It's like a really long semester in some way, you know, yeah. that there were seeds of all of these thoughts and there were seeds of all of these uh, things when we were studying together. So it was exploring that on a deeper level, let's say, with this film. So, yeah, we do uh, kind of have as a man manifesto this idea of the collaborative and transnational uh, filmmaking that we, we were pursuing, uh, let's say, in the background as, you know, filmmakers uh, trying to grasp the world in which we live and also this industry. Could we say it was inspired mm-hmm. by the Doc Nomads experience? <laughs> completely. For like, sure, completely. completely. Mm. Ladies, I want to congratulate you then once again on completing such a such a journey of making a film together. And I really enjoyed talking to you and I had all my genuine curiosity satisfied <laughs> after chatting with you. Same with us. Um, I wish you all the best with the festival life of the film. And thank you. Yeah, good luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. This podcast was produced by Bandarei Productions, with music by Naim Makhboub in Stockholm, editing by Eka Tsutsoria in Tbilisi, and produced by Christina Zakriades in New York. Thanks for listening, and tune in for our next episode, where we feature a conversation with filmmaker Afsane Salari about her film The Silhouettes, which is world premiering at Vision Studiel and available to stream on their website until May 2nd. For more goodies, visit us online at docsinorbit.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for updates. And until next time, we leave you with music courtesy of Vandana from her studio in Brooklyn.
Some can't 